Good morning. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to cover verses 1 through 16 this morning. We're going to be tackling a big subject today. We're going to look at what the scripture says regarding marriage. I looked up a few articles this past week in regards to what the world in general says about marriage. And it's a sad thing. Marriage is on the decline. Now take a country like Norway. Now this is just an article I read um, that came out last year. It said 82, 82% of couples in Norway have their first child without getting married. In the United States, the percentage is something like 40%. And in an article I read where a number of people were interviewed about their opinions regarding marriage and why it's becoming less popular, this is what one person said. And the sad thing was a lot of people saw marriage as unimportant or even worse, they saw it as a bad thing. So one person said, to put it short, he told us, marriage costs money. Party, clothes, rings, honeymoon, trip, etc., and gives no significant advantages as there are no economic or legal advantages and no real social pressure to get married or anyone frowning on premarital sex and cohabitation. Well, we know back in Genesis, God created marriage, and marriage was and is a good thing. And for most believers, it's likely God's will in their lives. So today we're going to look at three different subjects in regards to marriage. We'll look first at marriage and sexual immorality and guidelines for the sexual relationship in marriage and what the Lord says to single people and finally what the Lord says to believers who are married to unbelievers. Let's starting at verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now it looks like the Corinthians had questions for Paul in regards to sexual relations. It says Paul, uh, they had wrote to Paul about these things. And the Corinthians probably had a lot of questions for Paul. The Corinthians, you could say, had a lot of baggage from their unsaved lives in this area of their lives. As we mentioned before, Corinth was a city known for sexual immorality. The cult of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, was centered there, which you could say engaged in prostitution on a large scale. Sexual immorality really was not considered a bad thing in Corinth. It was something that was normal. You went to Corinth for that reason. So a lot of these Corinthians were saved out of this background. They may not have had a real idea of what a real marriage should look like. And Paul just talked in this last passage about just what a serious sin sexual immorality is. Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. 
Now this word touch here, um, the word touch, this is not referring to a friendly handshake or a hug. This is talking about um, sexual relations between a man and a woman. Paul is saying here, it's a good thing for a believer to choose not to engage in this kind of relationship with a woman. Really, it is a good thing for a man to choose to live a life as a single person. Now today, and probably back in the days when Paul was writing, being single was, not, was probably not considered to be a good thing. And these days, there's sometimes a lot of pressure, I would say, uh, for people to be in a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. Now, I can remember in my college days and beyond as a person in my 30s, people would ask me a question like, what, you don't have a girlfriend? But you've never had a girlfriend? You've never been on a date in your entire life? What's wrong with you? And maybe if you're a woman who's single, maybe you have a, you've had the question, why don't you have a boyfriend? Why aren't you seeing anyone? Well, if the Lord has made it clear that at this time in your life you should be single, or if you are single because you're waiting for the Lord to provide the person of his choosing, then you're in a good place. You're exactly where the Lord wants you to be. But there's a big problem that Paul mentions in verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. You might also paraphrase this verse uh, something like, Nevertheless, because of the great danger posed by sexual immorality and the prevalence of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And what is sexual immorality? I think the thing that often comes first to mind is perhaps something like adultery a man cheating on his wife, or a wife cheating on her husband. And while that's certainly included in the term used here, uh, the term, the Greek word is pornea, it could be translated in English um, fornications, it covers a number of other sins. Sex before marriage is a sin. In sexual relationships, like Don mentioned a few weeks ago, where in the Corinthian church, a man was having an affair with his stepmother. That's sin. Homosexuality is sin. And just getting to the heart of things, having lust for a person who is not my spouse is a sin. Now, it can be easy for us to think of ourselves, well, I wouldn't classify myself as a sexually immoral person. I've never actually committed adultery or fornication with someone. But the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, I'll just read the verses. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. whether it happens in your mind or in an actual real life, to the Lord, you've committed adultery. 
Now, I'd say, the sad thing is, I'd say we're at a time in our country where we're not really that far off from Corinth in how bad things are in terms of sexual immorality. It's become the norm for a lot of people in this country. Statistics show that since the 1950s, most Americans have engaged in premarital sex, most before the age of 20. In about a third of the marriages surveyed in this past year, one or both spouses admitted to having an extramarital affair. And that's just the people who had admitted. And these days, you just look at the media, you look at television shows and movies, and it seems like immoral sexual relationships are they're not, they're considered no big deal. In fact, they're promoted and glorified. These are some other statistics I read from a book published about nine years ago. They claim that in 2006, more than 70% of men in the U.S. between ages 18 to 34 visited a pornographic website in a typical month. Now, I can only imagine, probably in the past 11 years, things have likely gotten worse. Now, the ugly truth is sexual immorality is rampant and it poses a threat to any believer seeking to walk with the Lord. You just have to look at the world around you. There's so many things out there tempting a believer, tempting a believer to stumble to sin. And there are consequences to sexual immorality. Now, Matthew, uh, Matt brought up the case last week about King David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it all started with a look. David looked at Bathsheba with lust in his heart. Lust led to adultery. Adultery led to murder. And the prophet Nathan mentioned that David had given a great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And when David's house was judged, David faced the death of some of the sons. He faced internal strife in his house for years to come. And looking at ourselves, now even if you don't have an actual affair in real life, but you just engage in lustful fantasies, there are still consequences. You're really hurting your relationship with the Lord. You're not going to have the joy of salvation. You'll be spiritually dry in your life. Now, the Lord, he wants to use clean vessels, clean instruments in his work. If you engage in lustful thoughts in your mind, it's easy to think, well, I'm not really hurting anyone. I'm not really bad compared to other people. But the fact is, I've made myself unclean in the Lord's sight, and I put myself on the shelf in terms of being used by him. 
Now, these are actually some older statistics, but looking at a paragraph from William McDonald's 2004 book, The Disciples' Manual, we see the casualty rate among believers from sexual immorality, it's high. Bill cites a study from a guy named Dr. Howard Hendricks who counted 246 men who started out in full-time ministry who experienced moral failure within two years. Another study from a Dr. Paul Beck showed that only a tenth of those who start out in Christian work at 21 years old are still preaching Christ at 65. That's a 90% casualty rate. And this believer is not just taken down by sexual immorality, but also by discouragement and materialism. But sexual immorality was a big part of it. Really, none of us can underestimate the threat posed by sexual immorality. Any of us could fall into sin. So how do I, as a believer, protect myself from sexual immorality? Of course, I should be devoting myself to the Lord, trusting him to guard my heart from temptation, praying daily for his protection. I should be keeping myself busy for the Lord in service for him, keeping myself accountable to other people. But the big protection given in this passage is marriage. Now, there are plenty of reasons to want to get married. Paul gives a very practical reason in this chapter. Now, the desire for physical intimacy is part of how God made us. But it's intended only for the marriage relationship. For the believer to avoid sexual immorality, Paul tells a believer to get married. And there's no polygamy here. There's no multiple wives or multiple husbands. Paul says, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Just one. Starting at verse 3, Paul gives some guidelines in regards to sexual relations between a husband and wife. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, some Bibles might translate this word affection as perhaps kindness or benevolence. The term refers to physical intimacy between a husband and wife. And God created this as a gift. It's not just meant for procreation. It's meant to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. But as a husband, I'm obligated to give my wife sexual affection, and my wife is obligated to provide the same for me. It's something I owe her, and she owes me. In verse 4, Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If I'm married, it's like I belong to my wife now. I'm not my own person. The same goes for my wife. My wife is not her own person. She belongs to me. 
And so in regards to physical relations in the marriage, it's not right for me to withhold myself from her, or vice versa. That can happen sometimes in a marriage, perhaps when there's been some wrong done. A spouse might be tempted to use sex as a bargaining tool, withholding sex as a form of retaliation. But this is not the spouse's rendering due affection. And however, there are circumstances where physical intimacies may not be possible, perhaps due to poor health fatigue. And as a spouse, I need to be understanding, not demanding. Paul goes on to verse 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The act of physical intimacy should be practiced regularly in a healthy marriage. Paul says, do not deprive one another. Now, the word for deprive is actually the same word as rob or defraud. By not engaging in sex when my spouse would like it, I'm actually robbing her of something that is rightfully hers. A circumstance that would make it necessary to abstain from sexual relations would be something, something exceptional, perhaps for the work of the Lord, as Paul puts it, for prayer and fasting. Now, I can remember there was one day in my single days where I had an unsaved uncle who was on his deathbed, and it was a time where I felt like I need to pray and fast for him. Now, I haven't had anything like this happen since I've been married, but I could picture in a circumstance like I mentioned, that would be a time where my wife and I would probably abstain from sexual contact. This kind of abstaining should be done with consent and only for a time. The husband and the wife must agree on this. Because there are consequences if a man does not provide physical affection for his wife or if a wife does not provide affection for her husband. Satan can use this to tempt a believer into sexual immorality. It can be the start of division in the marriage of both physical and emotional distance formed between the husband and wife. When a husband is not receiving time together with his wife that he needs or a wife is not receiving the affection she needs from her husband, the dissatisfied spouse, the dissatisfied spouse might be tempted to look elsewhere. And it may not be an actual affair with someone, but a discontent spouse might engage in impure thoughts or look at impure things on the television. As a husband, I need to be sensitive to what are the needs of my wife and what form affection should take. Perhaps my wife really needs a back rub or a massage. And a wife should be sensitive to what are the needs of her husband in terms of, of affection. Do you know how often 
Your husband needs affection. One book I looked at called Every Man's Battle said that on the average, men have a buildup of lustful thoughts every 72, every 72 hours. By looking out for the sexual needs of your spouse, you're helping safeguard them from sexual immorality. Now Paul says in verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now, Paul's not being legalistic here. It's not essential that a couple abstain from sex during a time of prayer and fasting. It's a recommendation. Now, starting at verse 7, we're going to go into what the chapter says to those who are unmarried. Paul says, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So what's Paul talking about here? It almost sounds like Paul is saying, I wish everyone were just like me. And to a point he's saying that. He reveals that um, the rest of his intent in the, in the remaining of the passage. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Here Paul is referring to his unmarried status, to his singleness. Now the Lord gifts certain believers with the ability to remain single or unmarried. And it really is a gift. It's a natural desire for a person to want to be married, to have a family, to have children, There's nothing wrong with that. To decide to go through life as a single person in order to better serve the Lord goes contrary to that natural desire. And if it's in your ability to do so, and you decide to stay single in order to better serve the Lord, then praise the Lord, you can do that. There's a lot of ways in which a single person has an advantage over a married person in serving the Lord. Now, not to speak uh, badly of marriage, but marriage takes a lot of work. It takes time to see to your spouse's emotional and physical needs. If I'm married, like I was saying, I don't really belong, you know, I'm not independent. I belong to my wife at this point. But if I was single... I just belong to the Lord. I'm free to do to serve him in many capacities. Paul says it's a good thing to be able to do this. He says it's good to remain single. But it's not something that everyone can do. Now, I can say for myself, I'll speak from personal experience, there was a time where I was really intent on just wanting to be single. Just a couple of years after I got saved, I um, made what I'll say was a rash vow. Like I, I saw some people who were single, serving the Lord into their older years, and I thought, wow, I'd like to be like them. And so I made a vow saying, I am going to be single for the rest of my life and just be a single person on fire for the Lord all my days until the Lord comes back. Now you can see that didn't happen. Now five years into that vow, I realized 
you know, I really have to be honest with myself. I really do want to be married, and I can't deny that, and I really can't just wipe that desire out of my head. So I actually went to the elders at the time and said, listen, I've, I made a vow years ago, and I feel bad about breaking it. What, what do I do? And I was thankful the elders released me from that vow I made when I was like 23 years old. Like I said, it's not something everyone can do. Each one has his own gift from God. It's not that either singleness for the Lord or marriage for the Lord is better than the other. Singleness for the Lord is a good thing, and so is marriage. There's a proverb, after all, it says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. In verse 9, Paul says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if you find yourself unable to restrain your emotions and thought life in regards to sexual matters, well, here it says you should marry. Now, I don't say this just casually. I don't mean just go and marry anyone. Of course, the person should be a believer. Of course, they should be someone of the Lord's choosing. Now, if you're single here, perhaps the question might be arising in your mind, but what about me? I'm finding it hard to exercise self-control. There are times when I'm burning with passion. I really want to be married, but there doesn't seem to be anyone around. There seem no possibilities of getting married. And I can tell you, I've been there. I've had those thoughts myself. But the Lord, he's very aware of how he made you. If this is really a need in your life, then the Lord promises to supply your need. Now, this was a verse that was shared with me um, by one of my elders uh, in this time where, where, where I was, um, you know, really wanted to get married and it seemed like there were no possibilities. This is in Matthew verse 33, chapter 6. I think many of you know the verse already. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, in the verses preceding this in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord speaks of supplying our basic needs like food and clothing. And, you know, for the longest time, that's just how I applied this verse. I just thought, well, that's this verse about supplying our needs refers to um, supplying material things like food and clothing. But is a godly spouse a need in my life? If you don't have the gift of singleness and you cannot exercise self-control, as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians, then it is a need. If I'm looking for the Lord to fill this need in my life for a godly spouse, then, well, I need to be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let me be fully in the Lord's will, serving him exactly as he would want. And let me see how he provides. Because if the Lord sees you need a spouse, he will provide one for you. 
you know, the Lord takes care of us, takes care of you in all the big and little things in life. The Lord has supplied, I think, I don't know of anyone here going hungry. The Lord's provided for every believer here with food and clothing. So those are the basic things in life, small things we take for granted every day. But the Lord's also provided for the big things in life. He's provided for your eternal life and salvation. He won't leave a spouse out of the picture. Just looking at the preceding verse in Matthew, verse 32, the Lord says, For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Next, in verse 10, Paul begins to address those who are in what we call a mixed marriage, a situation where um, there's a believing spouse, but the person they're married to is not a believer. So Paul starts off by saying in verse 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, just to make something clear at the start of this verse, on first reading this, um, a years ago, it seemed a little confusing to me, where Paul is saying, not I, but the Lord. It almost sounds like maybe Paul has a different opinion than what the Lord does. But what Paul's really saying here is that this is a command that came directly from the Lord Jesus when he was teaching on earth during his earthly ministry. The Lord said in Mark 10, so they are no longer, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. While here on earth, the Lord Jesus taught very clearly he did not want men divorcing their wives. A man has no grounds for divorcing his wife except for sexual immorality. And even then, it's not a command. A husband or wife can choose to stay with a spouse who's been unfaithful. And Paul reveals in verse 11 the reason for a wife even wanting to depart from her husband or vice versa. There's some kind of dispute or strife going on. Otherwise, Paul will not mention any need for reconciliation. Verse 12, Paul says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now, just to clear up uh, the start of this verse again, when Paul says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, once again, this is not Paul having a different opinion than what the Lord Jesus said. It's just this is a subject that the Lord Jesus did not teach about directly during his earthly ministry. And this is something that Paul's saying here as a new subject. Of course, this is still, though, the, um, the Lord speaking through Paul. So Paul pre- presents a scenario where a believing husband has a non-believing wife who is willing to stay with him, and a believing wife has 
a non-believing husband who was willing to stay with her. Now, why would this situation even be a problem? Now, why would a believing husband even think about um, divorcing his unsaved wife or a believing wife even consider divorcing her unsaved husband? Now, there may have been some questions, perhaps uh, when looking at the Old Testament, on how legitimate their marriages were. As we look in the Old Testament, and um, in the Old Testament, uh, when people were confronted about having a mixed marriage, the Lord um, actually told some people to divorce their wives. There was a case, there was in the book of Ezra, Old Testament believers were told to put away or basically divorce their unbelieving spouses whom they married. Or perhaps there may have been the thought among some of these newly saved believers that, well, it might be better to have a believing spouse instead. Now, Paul will say later on in another epistle, not to be unequally yoked, that a believer should not seek to be married to a person who's not a believer. But this situation is where the couple's already married and one of them is saved. Paul says in the situation that the believer should not divorce, should not divorce their unbelieving spouse. And the reason is stated in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is, unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now what does this word sanctify mean? It's not an everyday word we throw around in um, day-to-day conversation, but it means when I sanctify something, I set it apart to God. I'm declaring that something will belong to God. Now, we see throughout the Scripture, the Lord is not interested in just saving individuals. The Lord is interested in saving families. I won't point directly to the verses, but I'll just refer to the passages. Take a case in Acts chapter 10. There's a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And when you read this passage where the Apostle Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius, it's not just Cornelius that was present. It's not just Cornelius that got saved, but it says his whole household and even his close friends got saved same day. He made, Cornelius made it a point to summon his relatives and close friends to hear what, the, what Peter had to say. Later in Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> the apostle Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi. And it happened that night that their jailer asked them how he could get saved. And the Philippian jailer was saved, but not just him. It says his whole family got saved also. And you can even see it in the the Old Testament also. The book of Joshua. Um, When we see Joshua conducting military conquests in Canaan, we see him take down the city of Jericho. We see um, a woman and her family get saved, Rahab the harlot. And her family. 
was delivered. And not just, it wasn't just her, her whole family also was spared. Now going back to this verse in 1 Corinthians, chapter, 14, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, the verse is not teaching that just because you're a believer, it's a certainty that your spouse and your children will be saved. Because Paul asked a question at the end of the passage, verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But a family with a believing husband or a believing wife is favored in so many ways that other families are not. Now, there's probably a lot of people in this world that are unprayed for. And probably uh, because there may not be a believer who's close to them in their life. But an unsaved husband with a believing wife has a wife praying for him. Unsaved children with a believing parent have a parent praying for them. An unsaved husband or wife with a believing spouse has a benefit that many other houses do not have. If you're a believing wife married to a husband who is not a believer, you have the chance to be a shining light in a household that would otherwise be in complete spiritual darkness. Your unsaved spouse and children have the chance to hear the gospel where other households don't. The unsaved spouse has a chance to see the Lord Jesus working in your life. Now, of course, it's the Lord who saves people, but the believing spouse has a chance to exert an amazing influence in their family for the Lord. Verse 15, going on here, Paul brings up the opposite situation, you could say. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, why would an unbelieving wife or husband want to depart from their spouse if they were married before? Well, one possibility is, the fact is, anytime someone gets saved, there should be a big change in the believer's life. And sometimes the unbelieving spouse may not like the change they see. Perhaps the newly saved spouse feels a need to break from sinful habits that the couple used to engage in beforehand. Perhaps the unbelieving husband sees that wait a moment, he's no longer the most important person in his wife's life. The Lord's taken that place. These kind of changes can easily cause friction in a relationship. Now, I know from my own friendships, when I got saved in college, there was some friction between me and some of my unsafe friends because there was some frustration on their part because I didn't want to do the same thing as they they, that we used to do before I got saved. And 
In the case of a marriage like this, an unsafe spouse might come to resent the changes they see in the life of the person they married, and they may want to leave. There might be some strife in the marriage because of these things. And things get so bad that the unbelieving spouse wants to divorce, Paul says to let the unbelieving spouse leave. The believing brother or sister in the marriage is not required to stay. They're not under bondage. God has called us believers, as it's in Romans 12, to as much as depend on us to live peaceably with all men. That's why Paul says, um, verse 15 of this passage, but God has called us to peace. But if peace is impossible in this case due to the unbelieving spouse, then the believer does not have to stay in this marriage. Now going back to verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? At first, this this sounds like it could be a question casting doubt on whether a believing spouse could bring about the salvation of their unsaved wife or husband. Now, of course, it's the Lord I mentioned who saves, not any believing husband or wife. But this this question here at the end is really meant more as an encouragement for the believing spouse. Because the believing spouse in the marriage really needs encouragement. It may be difficult for the husband or wife who is a believer living with their unsaved spouse. Another way to paraphrase this verse would be, oh wife, you don't know what will happen. You You might help lead your husband to the Lord. And oh husband, you don't know what will happen. You may save your wife. Now, like I said before, it's not a certainty that the unsaved spouse will get saved, but the Lord presents it as a very real possibility to encourage the believing spouse to keep going in their marriage and not lose heart. So in conclusion, there's a lot of areas for application here for all of us, whether we're married or unmarried. If I'm married, is there any way I can better be showing affection to my spouse? Am I being thoughtful and considerate to my spouse in this regard? If I'm single, I should be looking for how to live a holy life and keep pure in my mind and actions. And if I want to be married, I should be in prayer for a godly spouse and seeking God's kingdom first and his righteousness. And if my spouse is not saved, or I'm in a family with unsaved parents or siblings, well, you know, don't let me, let me not stop praying for my unsaved family. Because you don't know what will happen. The Lord may use you to win the soul of your unsaved spouse or family to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of marriage, and Lord, we want to do your will. You know, we know that your will in our life is um, to live holy before you, to keep pure before you, and Lord, we pray that you would help us just uh, have a high regard for marriage, and Lord, we do pray for any here who 
our unmarried, Lord, I pray for your provision for them. And Lord, I pray for any who have unbelieving spouse, Lord. Lord, I pray for their continued encouragement, help them, Lord, in winning their unsafe spouse over to you, Lord. We do pray these things in Jesus' name.